93 by Victor Hugo Part 3, Book 7, Chapters 4-6 through six. A camp is a wasp's nest, especially during a revolution. The civic sting which is in the soldier comes out readily and quickly, and does not hesitate to strike down a leader after having driven away the enemy. The valiant troop which had taken the torg was filled with various buzzings, first against Major Gauvin, when Lantanac's escape became known. When Gauvin was seen coming out of the cell in which Lantanac was thought to be imprisoned, an electric shock ran through the whole camp, and in less than a minute all the soldiers had been informed. A murmur burst forth in the little army. They're trying Gauvin now, but it's only for the sake of form. That shows you how much you can trust noblemen and priests. We've just seen a vicomte save a marquis, and now we are going to see a priest acquit a nobleman. When Gauvin's death sentence became known, there was a second murmur. They can't do that. Our leader, our brave leader, our young commander, a hero. He's a vicomte. That only means he deserves all the more credit for being a republican. He's the liberator of Pontorson, Villedieu, and Pontaubeau, the conqueror of Dole and the Torg, the man who makes us invincible, who's the sword of the Republic in Vendée, and who, for the past five months, has been holding off the rebels and repairing all the blunders of Lachelle and the others. And Simordan dares to sentence him to death? Why? Because he saved an old man who'd saved three children? A priest dares to kill a soldier. Thus grumbled the victorious and dissatisfied camp. Simordan was surrounded by dark anger. He was opposed by four thousand men. That would seem to be a great force, but it was not, for those four thousand men were a crowd, and Simordan was a will. It was known that he frowned easily, and that was enough to keep the army in check. In those stern times, the shadow of the Committee of Public Safety behind a man was sufficient to make him formidable, and to reduce imprecations to whispers, and whispers to silence. After the murmurs, as well as before them, Simordan remained the arbiter of Gauvin's fate, and the fate of all the others. Everyone knew that there was nothing one could ask of him, and that he would obey only his conscience, a superhuman voice heard by him alone. Everything depended on him. What he had done as a military judge could be undone only by him as a civil delegate. Only he could grant pardon. He had full powers. He could free Gauvin with a word. He was the master of life and death. He was in command of the guillotine. At that tragic moment, he was the supreme man. There was nothing to do but wait. Night came. The courtroom had again become a guard room. The guard was doubled as it had been the night before. There were two sentries before the locked door of the dungeon. Toward midnight, a man with a lantern in his hand walked across the guardroom, 
made himself known to the sentries, and had the door of the dungeon opened. It was Simordan. He entered, and the door remained ajar behind him. The cell was dark and silent. Simordan took a step in the darkness, put the lantern on the floor, and stopped. He could hear the steady breathing of a sleeping man. He listened thoughtfully to that peaceful sound. Gauvin was lying on the bundle of straw at the far end of the cell. It was his breathing that could be heard. He was sleeping soundly. Simordan went over to him as silently as possible and began looking at him. His look was as tender and ineffable as that of a mother gazing at her sleeping baby. He may have given Gauvin that look in spite of himself. He pressed his fists against his eyes, as children sometimes do, and stood still for a moment. Then he knelt, gently lifted Gauvin's hand, and put his lips to it. Gauvin made a movement. He opened his eyes with the vague astonishment of a man who awakes with a start. The lantern lighted the cell dimly. He recognized Simordan. Ah, it's you, my master, he said. And he added, I dreamed that death was kissing my hand. Simordan experienced that jolt which is sometimes given to us by the sudden invasion of a wave of thoughts. Sometimes this wave is so high and so stormy that it seems that it will extinguish the soul. Nothing came out of Simordan's deep heart. He was able to say only, Gauvin. And they looked at each other, Simordan with his eyes full of those flames which burn tears, Gauvin with his gentlest smile. Gauvin raised himself on his elbow and said, That scar I see on your face is from the saber wound you received from me. Only yesterday you were in the fighting beside me and because of me. If Providence hadn't placed you by my cradle, where would I be today? In darkness. If I have any notion of duty, it has come to me from you. I was born bound. Prejudices are bonds. You removed them from me. You let me grow in freedom, and you made a child from what was already only a mummy. You put a consciousness into what would probably have been an abortion. If it hadn't been for you, I'd have grown up little. I exist through you. I was only a lord. You made me a citizen. I was only a citizen. You made me a mind. You made me fit for earthly life as a man and for heavenly life as a soul. You gave me the key of truth to go into human reality, and the key of light to go beyond. Oh, my master, I thank you. It was you who created me. Simordan sat down on the straw beside Gauvin and said to him, I've come to have supper with you. Gauvin broke the black bread and handed it to him. Simordan took a piece. Then Gauvin held out the jug of water. Drink first, said Simordan. 
Govan drank and passed the jug to Simordan, who drank after him. Govan had taken only one swallow. Simordan drank in long draughts. During that supper, Govan ate and Simordan drank, a sign of calm in the former and of agitation in the latter. There was a kind of terrible serenity in the cell. The two men talked. Great things are beginning to take shape, said Govan. What the revolution is doing now is mysterious. Behind the visible work, there's the invisible work. The visible work is fierce. The invisible work is sublime. I can see everything very clearly now. It's strange and beautiful. It has been necessary to use the materials of the past. Hence this extraordinary ninety-three. Beneath a scaffolding of barbarism, a temple of civilization is being built. Yes, replied Simordan, from this provisional situation will come the definitive one. By the definitive one, I mean parallel rights and duties, proportional and progressive taxes, obligatory military service, a leveling process without deviations, and above everyone and everything, that straight line, the law, the republic of the absolute. I prefer the republic of the ideal, said Gauvin. He paused, then continued, Oh, my master, in everything you've just said, where do you place devotion, self-sacrifice, abnegation, the magnanimous interlacing of benevolences, love? To put everything in balance is good. To put everything in harmony is better. Above the scales, there's the lyre. Your republic weighs, measures, and regulates man. Mine sweeps him up into the blue sky. It's the difference between a theorem and an eagle. You've become lost in the clouds, and you in calculations. There's a certain amount of dreaming in harmony, and also in algebra. I wish man had been made by Euclid, and I'd like him better if he'd been made by Homer, said Gauvin. Simordan's stern smile came to rest on Gauvin as though to hold his soul fast. Poetry! Beware of poets! Yes, I know the saying. Beware of breezes, beware of sunbeams, beware of fragrances, beware of flowers, beware of the constellations. None of those things can feed anyone. How do you know? Ideas are food, too. To think is to eat. No abstractions. The Republic is two and two make four. When I've given everyone what's coming to him, you'll still have to give everyone what's not coming to him. What do you mean by that? I'm referring to the immense reciprocal concessions which each owes to all, which all owe to each, and which are the whole of social life. Outside of strict law, there's nothing. There's everything. I see only justice. I look higher. What is there above justice? Equity. 
Now and then they stopped, as though gleams were passing by. Simordan resumed. I challenge you to be specific. Very well. You want obligatory military service. Against whom? Against other men. I don't want any military service. I want peace. You want to help the poor. I want to eliminate poverty. You want proportional taxes. I don't want any taxes at all. I want common expenditures reduced to their simplest expression and paid by the social surplus. What do you mean? This. First, eliminate parasitisms. The parasitism of the priest, of the judge, of the soldier. Then, make use of your riches. You throw manure into the sewer. Throw it into the fields instead. Three-quarters of the land is lying fallow. Cultivate the soil of France. Do away with useless pastures. Divide the communal lands. Let each man have a piece of land, and let each piece of land have a man. You'll increase the social product a hundredfold. France now gives her peasants meat only four times a year. Well cultivated, she could feed three hundred million people, all of Europe. Utilize nature, that immense neglected helper. Make every wind work for you, every waterfall, every magnetic emanation. The earth has an underground network of veins. In that network there's a prodigious circulation of water, oil, and fire. Tap the veins of the earth and bring forth that water for your fountains, that oil for your lamps, that fire for your hearths. Consider the movement of the waves, the ebb and flow of the tides. What is an ocean? An enormous wasted force. How foolish the earth is not to use the ocean. You're in the midst of a dream. In other words, in the midst of reality. And woman, what will you do with her? Simordan answered, I'll leave her what she is. Man's servant. Yes, on one condition. What is it? That man also be woman's servant. Are you serious? cried Simordan. Man a servant? Never. Man is the master. I acknowledge only one kind of royalty, that of the home. A man is a king in his own home. Yes, on one condition. What is it? that woman be queen there. In short, between men and women, you want equality. Equality? You can't mean it. Man and woman are two different creatures. I said equality. I didn't say identity. There was another pause, like a kind of truce between those two minds exchanging flashes of lightning. Simordan broke it. And the child? To whom do you give it? First to the father who begets it, then to the mother who gives birth to it, then to the teacher who raises it, then to the city which makes it an adult, then to the country which is the supreme mother, then to humanity which is the great ancestor. You haven't spoken of God. Each of those stages, father, mother, teacher, city, country, and humanity, 
is a rung of the ladder that leads to God. Simordan remained silent. Govan went on. When one is at the top of the ladder, one has reached God. God opens. One only has to enter. Simordan made the gesture of a man calling another back. Govan, come back to earth. We want to realize the possible. Begin by not making it impossible. The possible is always realized. Not always. If you treat utopia roughly, you'll kill it. Nothing is more defenseless than an egg. But we must seize utopia, put the yoke of reality on it, and frame it in fact. The abstract idea must be transformed into a concrete idea. It gains in usefulness what it loses in beauty. It's lessened, but it's better. Right must enter into the law, and when right is made law, it's absolute. That's what I call the possible. The possible is more than that. Ah, you're back in your dream again. The possible is a mysterious bird, always soaring above man. It must be caught. Alive, Govan continued. This is my thought. Always forward. If God had wanted man to go backward, he would have given him an eye in the back of his head. Let's always look in the direction of dawn, of blossoming, of birth. What falls encourages what rises. The crackling of the old tree is a call to the new tree. Each century will do its work. Today it's civic. Tomorrow it will be human. Today the question of right Tomorrow, the question of pay. Payment and right are basically the same. Man doesn't live to be paid nothing. In giving life, God contracts a debt. Right is inborn payment. Payment is acquired right. Govan spoke with the composure of a prophet. Simordan listened. The roles were reversed. It now seemed that the pupil was the master. "'You go swiftly,' murmured Simordan. "'Perhaps it's because I'm a little pressed for time,' Govan said, smiling. "'Oh, my master, here's the difference between our two utopias. You want an obligatory barracks. I want schools. You dream of man as a soldier. I dream of man as a citizen.' You want him formidable. I want him thoughtful. You're founding a republic of swords. I'm founding... He stopped. I'd found a republic of minds. Simordan looked at the floor of the cell and said, And in the meantime, what do you want? What is? You absolve the present time? Yes. Why? Because it's a storm. A storm always knows what it's doing. For every oak struck by lightning, how many forests are made healthy? Civilization was in the grip of a pestilence, and this great wind is curing it. The wind may not be selective enough, but could it do otherwise? It has such hard work to do. Before the horror of the miasma, 
I understand the fury of the wind. Furthermore, what does the storm matter to me if I have a compass, and what do events matter to me if I have my conscience? And Gauvin added in a low voice that was also solemn, There's someone who must always be allowed to act freely. Who? asked Semordan. Gauvin raised his finger above his head. Simordan's eyes followed the direction of that upraised finger, and it seemed to him that he could see the starry sky through the ceiling of the dungeon. They were both silent for a moment. "'You're depicting society bigger than nature,' said Simordan. "'It's no longer the possible. It's a dream. "'It's the goal. Otherwise, what would be the good of society? "'Remain in nature. Be savages.' Tahiti is a paradise. However, in that paradise, no one thinks. An intelligent hell would be better than a stupid paradise. But no, no hell. Let's be human society. Bigger than nature, yes. If you add nothing to nature, why go beyond nature? In that case, content yourself with work, like the ant, or with honey, like the bee. Remain a working beast instead of being a reigning intelligence. If you add something to nature, you will necessarily be greater than nature. To add is to increase, and to increase is to grow. Society is nature made sublime. I want everything that's lacking in beehives and ant hills, monuments, art, poetry, heroes, geniuses. To bear eternal burdens is not the law of man. No, no, no more pariahs, no more slaves, no more convicts, no more damned. I want each attribute of man to be a symbol of civilization and a pattern of progress. I want liberty in front of the mind, equality in front of the heart, fraternity in front of the soul. No, no more yokes. Man is made not to drag chains, but to spread his wings. No more of a man as a reptile. I want the transfiguration of the larva into the butterfly. I want the earthworm to change into a living flower and fly away. I want... He stopped. His eyes flashed. His lips moved. He ceased talking. The door had remained open. Some of the sounds from outside came into the dungeon. Distant bugles could be heard, probably sounding reveille. Musket butts struck the ground as sentries were relieved. Then, rather close to the tower, as well as one could judge in the darkness, there were noises like those of planks and beams being moved and dull, intermittent sounds like hammer blows. Simordan, pale, listened. Gauvin did not hear. His reverie was becoming deeper and deeper. He was so attentive to what he saw beneath the visionary vault of his brain that he seemed to have stopped breathing. He occasionally started slightly. The gleam of dawn in his eyes grew brighter. 
some time passed thus. Then Simordan asked, What are you thinking about? The future, said Gauvin, and he sank back into his meditation. Simordan stood up from the straw bed on which they had both been sitting. Gauvin did not notice. Gazing intently at the thoughtful young man, Simordan slowly walked backward to the door, then turned and went out. The door of the cell closed behind him. Dawn soon appeared above the horizon. Along with the daylight, a strange, motionless, surprising thing, unknown to the birds of the sky, appeared on the plateau of the Torg above the Fougere forest. It had been put there during the night. It had been erected rather than built. Seen from a distance, it was a shape made of hard, straight lines, having the appearance of a Hebrew letter, or one of those Egyptian hieroglyphs which were part of the alphabet of the ancient enigma. At first sight, the idea which this thing aroused was the idea of usefulness. It stood among the blooming heather. One wondered what it could be used for. Then one felt the beginning of a shudder. It was a kind of platform with four posts for legs. At one end of the platform, two tall, straight, vertical beams, connected at the top by a cross-piece, held up a triangle, which looked black against the blue morning sky. At the other end of the platform was a ladder. At the bottom of the two beams, below the triangle, was a kind of panel composed of two movable sections which fitted together and formed a round hole about the size of a man's neck. The upper section of the panel slid in a groove so that it could be raised or lowered. For the moment, the two crescents, which formed the circular hole when they were joined, were drawn apart. At the foot of the beams supporting the triangle was a hinged plank that looked like a seesaw. Beside this plank was a long basket, and between the two beams, on the forward edge of the platform, was a square basket. It was painted red. Everything was made of wood, except the triangle, which was made of iron. It was so ugly and small that one sensed immediately that it had been constructed by men, and it was so formidable that it deserved to have been brought there by genie. That unshapely structure was the guillotine. Opposite it, rising out of the ravine a few paces away, was another monster, the Torg. A stone monster was paired with a wooden monster. And let us add that when man has touched wood or stone, it is no longer wood or stone, but takes on something of man. An edifice is a dogma. A machine is an idea. The Torg was that baleful result of the past, which was called the Bastille in Paris, the Tower of London in England, the Spielberg in Germany, the Escorial in Spain, the Kremlin in Moscow, and the Castle of San Angelo in Rome. In the Torg were condensed fifteen hundred years, the Middle Ages, vassalage, serfdom, feudalism. In the guillotine, one year, ninety-three. 
and those twelve months balanced those fifteen centuries. The Torg was the monarchy. The guillotine was the revolution. It was a tragic confrontation. On one side, the debt. On the other, the falling dew. On one side, inextricable Gothic complications, serfs, lords, slaves, masters, commoners, noblemen, a multiple code branching out into customs, judges and priests in coalition, countless bonds, tax collectors, the salt tax, property in Mortmain, capitations, exceptions, prerogatives, prejudices, fanaticisms, the royal privilege of bankruptcy, the scepter, the throne, royal whims, divine rights. On the other side, one simple thing, the blade of the guillotine. On one side, a knot. On the other, an axe. The Torg had for a long time been alone in that desert. It had been there with its machicolations through which had streamed boiling oil, burning pitch, and molten lead, with its dungeon cells paved with bones, with its torture chamber, with the enormous tragedy with which it was filled. It had dominated that forest with its sinister figure. It had had fifteen centuries of fierce tranquility in those shadows. It had been in that region the only power, the only respect, and the only fear. It had reigned. It had been barbarism without a rival. And suddenly, it now saw standing before and against it something, more than something, some one as horrible as it was, the guillotine. Stone sometimes seems to have strange eyes. A statue observes, a tower watches, a facade contemplates. The Torg seemed to be examining the guillotine. It appeared to be questioning itself. What was that? It seemed to have come up out of the earth, and it had, in fact, done so. The sinister tree had grown in the fateful ground. From that ground, moistened by so much sweat, tears, and blood, from that ground in which so many pits, graves, caverns, and traps had been dug, from that ground in which dead men slain by all sorts of tyranny had rotted, from that ground beneath which there are so many abysses, and in which countless heinous crimes had been buried like so many horrible seeds, from that deep ground had sprung, on the appointed day, that unknown avenger, that ferocious sword-bearing machine, and ninety-three had said to the old world, Here I am. And the guillotine had a right to say to the fortress, I am your daughter. And at the same time, the fortress, for those sinister things live with an obscure life, felt itself killed by the guillotine. Before that redoubtable apparition, the Torg had a look of dismay. One might have said that it was afraid. That monstrous mass of granite was majestic and infamous. That plank with its triangle was worse. The fallen omnipotence abhorred the new omnipotence. 
Criminal history was considering retributive history. The violence of the past was comparing itself with the violence of the present. The ancient fortress, the ancient prison, the ancient feudal manor, in which dismembered victims had screamed, an edifice of war and murder, now useless, defenseless, desecrated, disabled, deposed, a heap of stones no better than a heap of ashes, hideous, magnificent, and dead, filled with the frenzy of frightful centuries, watched the terrible living hour pass by. Yesterday shuddered before today. The old ferocity took note of and submitted to the new horror. That which had sunk into nothingness opened shadowy eyes before that which was terror, and the phantom looked at the specter. Nature is merciless. She never consents to withdraw her flowers, her music, her fragrances, and her sunbeams before human abomination. She overwhelms man with the contrast between divine beauty and social ugliness. She spares him neither a butterfly's wing nor the song of a bird. In the midst of murder, vengeance, and barbarity, he must undergo the gaze of sacred things. He cannot escape the immense reproach of universal gentleness and the implacable serenity of the sky. Man breaks and crushes, man sterilizes, man kills. Summer remains summer, a lily remains a lily, a star remains a star. Never had the fresh sky of dawn been more charming than it was that morning. A warm wind stirred the heather, vapors drifted slowly through the branches. The fougere forest, permeated by the breath that rises from springs, smoked in the early sunlight like a vast censer filled with incense. The blue of the firmament, the whiteness of the clouds, the bright transparency of the waters, the verdure, that harmonious color scale which goes from aquamarine to emerald, the groups of fraternal trees, the patches of grass, the deep plains, everything had that purity which is nature's eternal counsel to man. In the midst of all that, horrible human shamelessness displayed itself. In the midst of all that, appeared the fortress and the scaffold, war and execution, the two symbols of the bloodthirsty age and the bloody moment, the owl of the night of the past and the bat of the dim dawn of the future. In the presence of the flowering, fragrant, loving, and charming creation, the splendid sky flooded the torg and the guillotine with light, and seemed to say to men, Look at what I'm doing, and what you're doing. Such are the formidable uses that the sun makes of its light. That spectacle had spectators. The four thousand men of the little expeditionary army were drawn up in battle array on the plateau. They surrounded the guillotine on three sides, so that they traced around it, in a geometrical plane, the shape of the letter E. 
the battery placed at the center of the longest line formed the middle bar of the E. The red machine was enclosed by these three battle lines, which were like a wall of soldiers bent at either end and extending to the edge of the escarpment of the plateau. The fourth side, the open side, was the ravine and faced the torg. This made a rectangle in the middle of which was the scaffold. As the sun rose, the shadow cast on the grass by the guillotine became shorter. The gunners were at their guns, with their matches lighted. Soft blue smoke was rising from the ravine. The fire that had consumed the bridge was dying out. This smoke blurred the outlines of the torg without hiding it. The high platform of the tower dominated the whole horizon. Between this platform and the guillotine there was only the ravine. One could talk from one to the other. The table of the tribunal and the chair shadowed by tricolored flags had been placed on the platform. The sun was rising behind the torg, outlining the black mass of the fortress, and at its top the figure of a man sitting motionless with his arms folded on the chair of the tribunal beneath the cluster of flags. That man was Simordan. As on the day before, he was wearing his civil delegate's costume, with a tricolored plume on his hat, his saber at his side, and his pistols in his belt. He was silent. Everyone was silent. The soldiers stood at attention, with the butts of their muskets on the ground. Their elbows were touching, but no man spoke to the man beside him. They were thinking confusedly of that war, of all the combats, of the shooting from hedges which they had so valiantly faced, of the throngs of wild peasants they had driven back, of the citadels they had captured, the battles they had won, the victories they had achieved. And it seemed to them that all that glory was turning to shame. Their chests were contracted with a somber expectation. They could see the executioner moving back and forth on the platform of the guillotine. The growing light of morning was majestically filling the sky. Suddenly they heard the sound of drums muffled with crepe. This funereal rumbling came closer. The ranks opened, and a procession entered the rectangle and moved toward the scaffold. First came the drummers with their black drums then a company of grenadiers with lowered muskets, then a platoon of gendarmes with drawn swords, then the condemned man, Gauvin. Gauvin was walking freely. There were no ropes on his feet or hands. He was in his undress uniform and was wearing his sword. Behind him came another platoon of gendarmes, his face still had that expression of thoughtful joy which had illuminated it when he said to Simordan, I'm thinking of the future. Nothing could have been more ineffable and sublime than that continued smile. On arriving at that sad place, his first look was at the top of the tower. He disdained the guillotine. 
he knew that Simordan would consider it his duty to witness the execution. He looked for him on the platform. He saw him there. Simordan was livid and cold. Those who were near him could not hear his breathing. When he saw Gauvin, he started. Gauvin was walking toward the scaffold. As he walked, he looked at Simordan, and Simordan looked at him. Simordan seemed to be leaning on that look. Gauvin reached the foot of the scaffold. He ascended it. The officer in command of the grenadiers followed him. He took off his sword and handed it to the officer. He took off his cravat and handed it to the executioner. He looked like a vision. Never had he appeared more handsome. His brown hair floated in the wind. It was not then the custom to cut the hair short. His white neck made one think of a woman, and his heroic sovereign eyes made one think of an archangel. He was still thoughtful as he stood on the scaffold. That place, too, is a summit. He stood there superb and tranquil. The sunlight enveloped him and seemed to place an aureole around him. He had to be bound. The executioner stepped forward with a rope in his hand. At that moment, when they saw their young commander so close to death, the soldiers could restrain themselves no longer. Those warriors' hearts burst. An enormous sound was heard, the sob of an army. A clamor arose. Mercy! Mercy! A few men fell to their knees. Others threw down their muskets and raised their arms toward the top of the tower where Simordan was seated. A grenadier pointed to the guillotine and shouted, If they'll take a replacement for that, here I am! They all repeated frenziedly, Mercy! Mercy! Even a lion would have been deeply moved or frightened to hear them, for the tears of soldiers are terrible. The executioner stopped, not knowing what to do. Then a voice that was curt and low, yet so sinister that everyone heard it, spoke from the top of the tower. Enforce the law! Everyone recognized that inexorable tone. Simordan had spoken. The army shuddered. The executioner no longer hesitated. He approached, holding his rope. Wait, said Gauvin. He turned toward Simordan, made a gesture of farewell with his right hand, which was still free, then let himself be bound. When he was bound, he said to the executioner, Excuse me, one more moment. And he cried out, Long live the Republic! He was placed on the plank. That proud and charming head was held fast beneath the infamous yoke. The executioner gently lifted his hair, then pressed the release. 
the triangle began to slide downward, slowly at first, then swiftly. A hideous blow was heard. At the same instant, another sound was heard. The stroke of the blade was answered by a pistol shot. Simordan had taken one of the pistols from his belt, and when Gauvin's head dropped into the basket, Simordan shot himself in the heart. Blood gushed from his mouth, and he fell dead. And those two souls, tragic brothers, soared away together, the darkness of one mingled with the light of the other.